0: So I think you definitely did cover most things, but I guess what I'm really touching on is psychological need. What are the psychological needs we need? Do we need like love, belonging? Um, I'm not sure. I'm kind of just running through my head. And what would you say even personally or generally are the things you notice that people need?
1: So th- there have been some studies um, that have really gotten at this question of, is love and belonging an actual biological need or biological, psychological need? Um, I think, I, f- I forgot which scientist did it, um, but essentially the study was, uh, does a baby monkey need uh, mother's love or just food? Um, and so they had two sort of fake... Mothers, one of them uh, who had food but was made of wire, and another one who didn't have food but was made of like a really soft cloth. And what they found was that the majority of the time the baby monkey clung to the foodless cloth mother. um, And that was sort of evidence that uh, love and comfort um, are important needs, not just, um, you know, things to dismiss, um, but actual needs that monkeys and presumably. Uh, humans um, need
0: yeah and definitely love everybody needs that belonging and that love and I think that's why communities are created that's why people want to belong to something they want to be part of a group and here on campus we have a cappella groups and we definitely don't lack the just sheer amount of clubs that people feel that they need to belong to
1: I th- I think love and belonging are somewhat different. I think they are connected, but I wouldn't say that involvement in an a cappella group is akin to the feeling of a child for their parents and a, par- a child receiving love from their parents.
0: That that that's definitely true, but I want to touch on the things that are relevant for non-children at the moment. So maybe there is a little bit of resemblance of just belonging to a group rather than having loving and caring from a mother, which is a very big extreme, very much a human need when you're a child. But today, what I find is that even folks in a cappella groups really find it as they are part of something. They're part of this group that performs. That's what unites them, but that's also what builds their friendships. That's how they define really, you know, who they interact they interact with, how, how they behave, and it's really just a one uniting thing that builds the community. Do you have any communities um, like that in your life, or where, where do you see your your primary groups to drop on? Oh, I, it's definitely a friend group. I have a group of friends that I drop on. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, Kobe, nice. <laughs> you are part of that group. Oh, I'm touched. But, I'm touched. <laughs> but also the Jewish community is very much a group that, I think we are united in some way, but it's also really, mu- really a community. And from what I'm seeing and meeting people outside of college and young professionals is it's hard to find that community. It's hard to build that community when it's not structured, when you don't have that a cappella group, when you're not taking classes together. And I think people need something outside of work that will be a community for them. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure how... When I come out of college, I will build that community, whether it will be through the Jewish community or or not, or what what you build your community around.
1: Yeah, I think the our communities continuously shift throughout our lives. Um, And to some extent, as as we grow older, our community becomes synonymous with our family. Um, like I'm thinking about my grandma now, and how, at our Passover seder,s she's the the matriarch of the household, and everyone sitting at the table is a descendant of her, um, and that, you know, has become her community, um, and so, over the course of our lives, in college, we have our friend groups, and then as we go older, it kind of progresses to being more familial um, than than friendship oriented.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely becomes a lot more of family. I mean, depending on the person, of course, but something that very much saddens me is meeting folks who don't have a family when they're a little bit older. um, And I don't mean it needs to be a specific age, but they just can't find that community and they're, they're, they're seeking it, but they fall through the cracks. And I think that's a really much a systemic problem that's happening is a lot of loneliness where people come out of work and don't have that support, don't have that community, so they go and maybe play video games. And I don't have specifically data to support this right now, but I've just met so many people, um, especially in the U.S., where... They go home and play video games and they try to build communities around that. And I'm not saying that is inherently bad, but it seems like there is a shift from this church based, very much family oriented community to these new kind of sub communities that are kind of being created um, now. And a recent interview with Mark Zuckerberg was when he first started Facebook, it was about really just connecting people. And now, and I think it was a year or two ago, he thought about it and shifted the mission to bringing people together and creating this community. And this was an idea that he was talking about. And I'm just curious how you think maybe communities can be created or just the idea of community and what the new type of community and society will be created. Saying a lot of community, but I think, I think it really is important.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. And I think the role of the internet in facilitating community and building connection, uh, is, is continuously, you know, on my mind and, and shifting today. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I, I do recognize that some people who maybe have difficulty with social interaction in, perp- in, in person can really, um, you know, connection over the internet can really do wonders. Um, and at the same time. I think there is tremendous loneliness to feeling that your only source of connection to the outside world um, is, is filtered through a digital medium. Um, so I think all of us are kind of navigating that spectrum between feeling genuine connection uh, and using the internet as a tool um, to, to help, you know, become closer to our friends um, and feeling that we're, we're kind of being used by the internet um, and submerged into our own worlds um
0: lonely behind a screen. Yeah. And I find a lot of adults coming up to me and saying, "Well, you guys don't have face-to-face interaction anymore. Like this has ruined everything. I used to call people, but now you just text." But I think my idea really is and what I what I think is such an optimistic thing about the internet is that I don't find it in my life being as if I'm going behind a screen and not having that interaction, but this sort of seamless integration between my face-to-face interaction and the text. And so I can kind of build this constant connection with somebody where I can communicate them on many different platforms and many different ways because the way you communicate is not just your body language, but suddenly you learn how somebody writes. Suddenly you have a tone to, you know, your calls or your text messages or your voice recording voice recording is a major thing now so there's just different mediums of communicating which i find fascinating but i think really loneliness and the people who just have the connection through you know text-based internet is really is is really damaging And I think that's what really creates this negativity on the internet, this, you know, toxic negativity where, you know, you see these videos and just a lot of people giving loads of negative comments and cynicism and like really looking for destruction on the internet. And I don't know whether it's because of the internet or not, whether it's, you know, social media that created it or it was there before, but I think the internet is kind of, enlarging every single idea so suddenly you have this platform where you can spread all that negativity and it's kind of becoming addictive and I guess my theory would be is that people that don't have that human connection don't have that community they find the community through this negativity that is being targeted at them and that's a loaded theory but that is just from personal you know seeing these accounts and these comments and I just can't imagine just somebody sitting behind a screen and writing these things I I don't know What, what do you think about just the negativity on the internet and maybe I'm just focusing on the negative there's so much positive so many great things but this negativity is overblown especially on the media and I just see news stories and 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 news stories kind of are just inherently sad. And yes, that's been going on for a while, but it's it inherently sad that you see the
1: news as inherently sad.
0: Well, it's it's a lot of times you know our democracy is failing, everything's going bad, the problem with this, the problem with that, you know, you know it, it, I don't know. I I haven't seen many positive articles and i know that you know you're more prone to read something if it's you know negative and kind of emergency and kind of hooks you in saying like ah our democracy is in danger or you know trump ruined or said something that's unpresidential or whatever it is but it 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 hooks you in
1: yeah so getting back to your sort of (laughs) (laughs) um talk about the negativity um I think you have to start a little bit deeper down, which is the internet is a place that gives rise to alternative personas and um, building a version of yourself um, that is different than, uh, than the self that you are in person. Um, and I definitely noticed this in, in my experience. Um, I've had interactions in um, you know, middle school where I would talk a lot with someone uh, over Facebook. And uh, then we would, you know, seemingly develop like a really nice connection. um, And then we would kind of get in person. And it's like, wait, this is different. How do we do this now? Um, And so that sort of made me realize, you know, you do need to have a balance between, um, you know, communicating online and in person. Uh, Like you said, it can be an amazing balance. um, And when used right, It is nice to have all those tools, Um, but if the proportion of time you spend communicating on the internet far outweighs in person, then you develop that alternative persona, Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the negativity stems from, this kind of psychological need to create a version of yourself that is ideal or, you know, to a sort of escapist reality. Um, I don't need to be myself. I can be this other person. Um, because anonymity is there, and um, you know it's just an opportunity to um, to be whoever I want to be, which is a very alluring prospect, uh, especially when your day to day reality is mundane.
0: Does this speak to you know? A lot of times, there's a saying that you dress up, you know, on Halloween or Purim to the person you want to be, and does this mean that every single person who presents this, you know, ideal lifestyle, is that who they want to be, in your opinion?
1: I, I certainly hope not. Um, that would be, yes, that would be terrifying. Um, no, but I'm curious because... No, I mean, I don't think anyone wants to be a, like, vicious troll that just says mean things to people. No, I think but... it's, it's more out of a, you know, I, I can do this. So so, why don't I try it? The consequences aren't dire. I'm just going to see what happens.
0: Are they inherently bad for, you know, doing this? Like, is there something internal you think that is motivating them? Is it just a cynicism or just spitting out all the bad things that are happening to them? And kind of like a bully just saying, like, I have something bad that happened to me. Therefore, you should hear it you should be made fun of
1: there there definitely is psychological psychological reasons uh for trolls trolling um but that doesn't make them any less responsible for bullying people uh online um but yeah in order to tackle the problem i think it is important to reckon with those underlying psychological um you know things going on
0: yeah and what about the folks who are very into instagram and showing their best life and flaunting this wealthy kardashian style lifestyle that isn't necessarily their life i'm curious is is that really how they want to be like is that a what they're aspiring to or is that just the cultural norm and they're just like, oh, this is what you do on Instagram. This is what you do on Facebook. This is what you show. I, I think
1: there is a um, sort of behaviorist system of dopamine rewards um, that motivates people to try to get more likes or hearts or whatever Instagram does um, that sort of like reinforces that kind of behavior, even though it doesn't truly make them happy in the long term. Um, that really the, the ideal isn't posting the picture of your time, like hiking a mountain. It should be the hiking the mountain part. Um, but yeah, I think there are, are all these minor dopamine rewards that, that reinforce um, those particular behaviors that you were kind of talking about.
0: Yeah, and absolutely, I think that dopamine definitely plays a role, and they're going to get likes based on, you know, how how much they – flaunt their lifestyle as you know whenever hiking a hike or being on the beach or showing pictures of their feet but <laughs> is that a, is that a genre of picture i i don't know i thought they're like the picture of you know you're the end of your legs and the beach and the water is like a very oh, like an artsy art, like yeah look, look at my legs and where they are yeah yeah like i'm on the beach now you know see me So I was in Israel and I was waiting for a bus. It was in Modin and there was this group of must have been 12. No, they they were 13, 14, 15, maybe. And I was listening to their conversation because they were also waiting for a bus. It must have been some sort of party bus. They were all dressed up. But the way they were talking was, you know, grossing me out because I felt that they were really just. Speaking as if they were the Kardashians, and I I don't even want to repeat what they were saying, just because of how gross I felt it was. How you know, mundane. How they were talking about themselves and their and their bodies, and you know, they were so young, and it was it was just really, really sad for me to see this. For you know, almost like this culture of you know, models and Kardashians and shopping, I don't know, yeah, they were just obsessed with these high luxury brands, 15-year-olds, and, and I was in ultimate shock, and especially coming into Israel and affecting, you know, these young girls, I, I just, I don't understand what the psychological reward of watching you know these kardashian show or the bachelor i mean i feel like when i'm watching it or when i start watching it it's it's a little bit like corrupting my brain just how unrealistic how scripted it is and i don't judge people who watch it at all but i'm clearly not (laughs) no i i really don't because everybody has the thing that they watch that Whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, it's it's how they just relax and I understand that and, and and I you know, asking people who who do who do watch these shows, but I'm curious what the psychology behind it is. Like you know you're watching something one hundred percent fake. It's not like a good production and it's showing you a lifestyle that you probably don't want, um, in an incredibly fake way. I don't know. I'm just curious, and I don't know if you're the right person to ask this, but I, I just want to hear your thoughts about these shows. Maybe you can like calm me down from getting so upset about them. <laughs> yeah. So, um,
1: so if I'm, I'll just articulate back to you your problem with The Bachelor. Uh, so essentially, <laughs> your problem is The Bachelor is not real, and it's a crappy
0: production. Is that? A, a no, fair, uh, no, No, there's it, so much more. Th- there's so much more. It's just, it, it. it's really crappy. So like if a really crappy movie came out, like it would get horrible trashy ratings. It'd probably not be carried by a lot of, you know, theaters. Um, you know, that's just about the production. If the storyline was just the worst, like I've never seen a worse storyline in my life. There's just no plot to it. Uh, you can tell almost how scripted it is and you know the whole backstory of it about how much these girls pay to be on the show and then there is no room for imagination because there's a thousand, you know, magazines coming up with how many breakups they had and the whole amount of money that goes into it. It just all the the, the whole package together just sometimes does upset me a little bit, but I I, I'm truly, you know, I'm trying to understand and figure out what what the what the psychological appeal is of it.
1: Yeah, just for the listener, Shua's face is bright red and
0: there's steam
1: coming out of his ears. <laughs> he's, he's about to lose it, but let me try to calm you down, Shua. <laughs> so
0: no no I I again again, I really respect people who watch it, and I understand that everybody watches you know what they want to watch but this this is this is the one thing that does <laughs> <laughs> moving on what are your thoughts well, about it kobe yeah so um
1: <laughs> i think that entertainment is one of those things that everyone is like you know like oh my taste in music is so much better than your taste in music and you know my tv shows are so much how do you watch that tv show or how do you like that song um and ultimately, it is just like, what is entertaining for me? You know, you watch Game of Thrones, which is coming out tomorrow, next season. Yes. Um, And Game of Thrones, not realistic. There's dragons. There's, sure. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Um, But I think maybe part of the intrigue is the psychological dynamics between characters and characters as they evolve. Um, And I think The Bachelor does have some of those uh, same dynamics. And obviously, you know, it is apparent that um, this is not entirely real. um, And that the production um, isn't the most high quality. But, you know, who's to say which... you, You like one thing, and they like another thing, and they don't like your thing, and you don't like their thing. That's okay. Like, everyone can have their own form of entertainment, and we don't need to be, like... My taste in music is better than yours.
0: My my taste in music is not is not very great. Just just for the for the for the show. But yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I I, I got out, you know, what I had to say about The Bachelor. But <laughs> um I, I think you're right. There there is differences in preferences between, you know, shows people watch and why this the psychology Psychological dynamics is really what decides is a good factor in deciding what you watch and what you find entertaining or, you know, stimulating for you. Um, my question is, is how much of those preferences or psychological dynamics are happening because of repetition and availability and so there's a psychological term where if you repeat a song many times in your head you're gonna start to like it right now it, to to a point do you think there's an extreme where if i if i hear the
1: you know disney small world absolutely. song too many times i'm gonna literally lose my mind absolutely um,
0: but you do like certain a lot of songs because they are repeated and. Radio stations, if a lot of times do repeat the same songs just all day, all the hit stations, it's just the same thing over and over again. And you do start to like it more. And I'm not, you know, eventually like when you catch on to it and, you know, you just hear it way too much, you do not like it. But even what I find is that if there is a song that I start liking you know, and I'm listening too much, I'll take a break, but then when I'll listen to it a month later, I'll still really like it. Does that make sense? So coming back to preferences, is it like a cultural thing that creates these like preferences in TV shows? Is it this celebrity culture that is just keep, you see it everywhere. You see it in the supermarket, you see it on the tabloids. Um, and there's this kind of culture created around it that, you know, younger people people especially our generation was exposed to so much that you just start liking it because that's what's available that's what's on your tv that's what's on mtv and that's like the lifestyle that people are chasing um and game of thrones same thing i don't know if i would like game of thrones if it wasn't you know if all my friends didn't like it and if i wasn't you know, if I didn't watch at least five episodes, because I don't think I really enjoyed it per se on the first episode or would have come to it any other way. Yeah.
1: Um, I definitely think there is a, a cultural element to entertainment. Um, and certain things in some cultures are not going to be entertaining in other cultures. And your taste in a TV show would have been different, uh, if you were not born in Israel. Um, Having said that, um, I would say there are a lot of thematic similarities between cultural uh, cultures and their entertainment. You know, most if not all cultures have sports as a, as a form of entertainment. There is comedy, there is, you know, action, these kind of large genres. And the specific things that people are going to find funny, um, those are going to be different, and the specifics of the sports are going to be different. Um, but ultimately that's that's not such a big deal there's there's these common threads between cultures and what people find entertaining um and i'm not sure exactly what we can trace that back to um but something about human nature or something like that (laughs) who who
0: knows (laughs) so so what entertainment do you enjoy i'm glad you asked uh like
1: mediums of entertainment or specific shows well start with mediums okay yeah yeah no i've been very into podcasts uh you know the past year because i have a job working at the library and i love listening to to podcasts while while sorting books um i used to be more into movies but i've had less time overall because of school so right now mainly podcasts and um, occasional movie every once in a while
0: yeah I think that's similar to me where I've shifted from watching a lot of TV when I was in high school or after high school and going to podcasts and lectures online because what I noticed is just the amount of information available today is insane. So I can find really the smartest people in the world giving these incredibly long lectures and podcasts and just continuously learning. And I think it was really something that i would train myself. So
1: no I was thinking
0: like how
1: does someone become the world's leading expert in something? You know? Like what is that how do you how do you reach that point where you like surpass the next person?
0: I think it it depends on the field, but if it's a certain field, it's reaching the top of the hierarchy of that field. So if you're the world's best chess player, you are probably the I don't know if you're the expert at chess, but we'll you know like... the best teacher at, at the expert on chess game strategy. If you are, um, you know, the leading academic, the most published academic, you are the leading expert on you know your research field, or you are one of the world leaders. If you're a hedge fund manager and you're managing the most money in the world and you have the best track record, you're probably the m- smartest person in the hedge fund industry. Obviously, there's luck there, but yeah.
1: So yeah, let, let's narrow it to specifically um a field involving knowledge. Like okay. acquiring knowledge, knowing facts and trends. Um so just for this specific example, why don't we say how would one become the leading expert in Mesopotamian history?
0: Ooh, good question. Let's move away from history. Um <laughs> <laughs> why don't we say who who how do you become the leading expert in Jewish geography? <laughs> sure. Yeah, that that's that's a subject I know something about. So, <laughs> can you define that for us? Um, just like the geographical shifts in Judaism over the past 3000 years. How 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 is that?
1: I would say we're still in history, the realm of history, but yeah, we can do that. So, my general thought is that there is so much information at our disposal, right? What really makes someone an expert is the ability to take in a lot of information and form complex connections um, between all of that, you know, those disparate facts. Um, and so we have all that information at our, our disposal. Um, so what separates the experts from the not experts isn't access to information, it's the ability and experience connecting those pieces of information.
0: I think I can definitely agree with that. You know, taking in the maximum amount of information and building the connections between them definitely does make you an expert, but I think also the only time you will listen to an expert is if they know how to communicate it. You know, whether that's written or verbal, because otherwise, if you don't understand clearly what they're saying, so they could be the smartest person in the world and understand everything perfectly. But if they can't communicate it to the world, if they can't, you know, build it into, you know, work in academia or figure out a way to show it, it just, you won't see them as much of an expert. I
1: feel like at this point, we are distinguishing between expertise and influence those are very different things someone with a lot of influence might not know what they're talking about
0: oh absolutely but i would say it's a mix of both so if you're you're talking about something like history or or a knowledge-based you know field you need both because you can't know if that they're an expert because there's no output that you can measure and say like oh like he solved this problem or he did this and then say, wow, he's an expert at it. So it's really just knowledge-based and you need to communicate it. That's your output. That's what you're telling the world. So yeah, of course there are people who can just like persuade and, you know, seem seemingly be experts, but are not. But even if you are the best expert, if you can't communicate it, you know, just nobody knows. There's, there's no way of measuring that. Do you think that
1: an electrician needs to be able to explain how they fixed the dishwasher to the dishwasher owner or is being an expert in that sense, just like, please fix my dishwasher. I don't care how you do it. You don't have to, you know, be eloquent and stuff. Just please fix it.
0: Well, that's what I was saying. If we're talking about, you know, historical knowledge, let's go back to history. Okay. You're not fixing anything. But if you're an electrician, that's what I'm saying, you can be an incredible electrician and not know how to communicate anything because you fixed the fridge and the fridge worked for five years now. So, yeah, yeah, you have to differentiate these things, but it's it's not as simple as saying like, oh, you know, you know how to connect knowledge because you can know how to connect knowledge in history and really in your mind kind of have the most amount of connected information, the best theories, you know, the most thoughtful ideas, you know, incorporating really everything there, but if you can't say it, if you can't speak it, if if nobody knows, it's it's kind of you're not really an, an expert because I mean, you may be internally an expert, but nobody can benefit from that expertise versus if it is something with output and that's why i was saying about for example a hedge fund manager it really is based on results and so you can be incredibly smart and make loads of money and you will be considered an expert in the hedge fund industry even if you can't like write two words just because it's very much based on returns over your time
1: yeah so in the realm of business i know you uh have been applying to internships and whatnot. If you if you're a person hiring interns, are you primarily looking for those communication skills, uh, or more of a solid background in, um, you know, economics and all of that stuff?
0: I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that, but we will have a guest here very soon who will will talk all about that. But one thing I would say is one of my favorite classes was business strategy. And in business strategy, we learned the idea of competitive advantage. And so when you look at a business, what makes, you know, one coffee shop more successful than another coffee shop that serves almost, you know, the same thing, but one of them is packed and the other one is not. And that's, you know, a fundamental question in business, you know, what is the thing that you can point to and say, like, this club or this bar is very successful and has loads of people and this bar is not. And so one of the things you look at in terms of competitive advantage, it could be, yeah, you have like this incredible knowledge. Okay, so a company can have expertise in a particular field. So let's say there are manufacturing cups. They have the most efficient manufacturing system. Okay, that's a competitive advantage because they can produce it for less and therefore sell it for less. Um, another form of competitive advantage would be a branding-based competitive advantage. So Beats headphones can charge a lot more for their headphones than a you know, non-branded, not necessarily Chinese, but <laughs> cheaply made um, headphone. And one of the best things about companies that really do succeed in the long run is you can't really point to their competitive advantage. So for example, Ikea, and this was one of the examples we learned, is you can't really say like, there's one thing that makes them incredible. Is it just that you can build you know, their things at home? Not necessarily, is it just their store experience? Is it just their manufacturing? There's no way you can copy what they do because you don't know what it is. And this goes to somewhat to my fascination with Starbucks because in essence, they are selling coffee, you know, at a pretty high premium to especially their cost, I mean, is negligible. Um, And you can get coffee anywhere, you can buy it for incredibly cheap. But for some reason, they're literally the most successful store in the world. And They don't really specialize. They don't really sell food. There's nothing really special. I mean, their coffee is good, but I've never heard anybody say, like, their coffee is, you know, better than any sort of small coffee shop or any other coffee shop. And that's where the question really comes in. Um, What makes them successful? So to you, and this is what I would ask before I, like, give my opinion, what do you think is so Great about Starbucks that makes them, you know, the largest coffee company in the world. Even though there's thousands of coffee shops everywhere they are, they're competing with everybody, but for somehow they're getting all the business.
1: So I'm not a coffee drinker, so I I can't uh, give voice to the the taste of the mochas and such. But <laughs> um, what I am thinking is at at this level of popularity, I think there is kind of a snowball effect of Starbucks is popular, therefore it is popular and will become more and more popular um, because people are comfortable with it. And, um, you know, word of mouth has has reached a point where Starbucks is a household name. Um, so I don't know exactly how they grew from a small business to what they are today, um, but I think we can say at this point they've reached a certain threshold that snowballs their success into more success
0: i think that's a good point and there there is something to that but and i'm just going to go a little bit more into business is like companies like jc Penney that were such household names you know forever they're a hundred and something years old or sears for example that just kind of collapse and there's loads of companies that especially coffee companies in the early days or even in the past, you know, 10, 20 years that have had that snowball effect, they reach a certain level of popularity, but eventually kind of crumbled. And I think that speaks to something special at Starbucks is you can't really point and say, you know, their coffee is so good, which is why they're there, because it's not the best, you know, their service, pretty good. Um, Their store, like, I don't, you can't really define what makes them su- successful and there is no inherent network effect to it. Meaning if you go to Starbucks once, there's no value for somebody else to go into Starbucks or for you to go into there again versus like Facebook. If you could join Facebook, then it's more valuable for somebody else to join Facebook. And that's kind of the idea of social networks is where you have this net- incredibly strong network effect And that's why it's so hard to break in. But coffee doesn't have that. So my take is, is that when you are thinking about competitive advantage and when I think about it personally is I like to think of things that you can't really copy. So if I, for example, knew a specific code or such um, and I knew it really well, I knew it amazing and I come to an employer um, and say, you know, I know this amazing code, so there's always going to be somebody smarter than you who says, well, I can learn that code and they can learn it better than you. And they can pinpoint exactly where, you know, you thought your competitive advantage was. And so when I think personally, I try to think, what are those internal things that make me different that I can't have somebody else just pinpoint to me? Obviously, you do need a base level of knowledge and, you know, expertise in your field. But what are those things that you bring to the table that not necessarily people can just copy or there will be somebody smarter than you that can do and i think that's a lot about internal reflection and looking at yourself and saying what what have i done in my life and everybody has a competitive advantage within them i think and i think this is true for you know not just businesses, but it can be relationships, it can be, you know, interaction with people. And it can be just like a personal psychological thing about looking at yourself and saying, you know, where do I have this advantage? And when you're competing, you know, where do I play the best role? Or when I'm in a soccer field and I'm on a soccer team, what, what am I best at? And what can't people, you know, somebody else just do right away? And that copies me. What what do you think of that idea? Because that's something that really does guide my thinking. And, you know, I really, I really take it to heart with everything I do.
1: Yeah. Um, So it's, it seems like there's a bit of a gap between your perception of how a business should carry out its lifespan and how a human should, (laughs) and that businesses should go for a more well-rounded, less specialized approach to not have one particular competitive, competitive advantage, but overall do do things well Um, and with humans you should kind of look at yourself and think um you know how how can i um contribute and help the people around me in the best way that i that i know um so do you do you see that gap um or do you think that both humans and businesses should try to eliminate a single competitive advantage in pursuit of a more well-rounded
0: life i'm glad you asked and i think this does feed into not exactly what i was saying because i don't think there is a well roundedness that starbucks has that makes them you know successful it's just you can't pinpoint one thing so i i don't think does it's that this, mean there i don't is think,
1: one thing it's just difficult to say what it is
0: no and i don't think it's even the sum of things i think it's just this you know something that does it um okay that's well, been built in and i you can't define it right that's at, the beauty of it is that you can't look at it and say like oh it's the sum of and you know it's it's hard to not but think at, at about this
1: point that. like that sort of feels to me just like lazy analysis like oh we just don't know exactly what it is like it's this ineffable quality to it some atmosphere that makes it great um but i think really like if you are thoroughly anal- analyzing it then that's what we're do. that's what the starbucks people do like those business people are looking, why are we successful and how can we continue? They're not resting on their laurels thinking, oh, we have this ineffable, indefinable quality um, and that'll that'll be good for us, right? They think, what can we be doing better? What do we do well? Um, so I think it definitely is possible to ask the question, what makes Starbucks better than the next coffee shop? And we don't have to just dismiss the question as they're just really good.
0: Yeah, but the thing about Starbucks is is that it's so hard to define. There, there may be, yeah, a bunch of things, and obviously they're not sitting there and saying like, oh, you know, we just have this thing. This is from an external analysis in saying, well, if we were to look at Starbucks versus Dunkin' Donuts, what's the difference between them? What makes Starbucks so successful and what makes Dunkin' kind of struggling a little bit? Why do these two companies, where one of them sells for half the price, presumably approximately the same thing, one one is a little bit more high-end, um, wh- why is Starbucks successful? And that's the question that I am answering um, when I do ask this question. But but I, I don't want to focus on this too much um, because I do think a business is different than a human being because a business is built, you know, and you're kind of just created – As you are versus you know there needs to be like this active kind of creation of a business and the sum of parts and bringing you know pieces together to create something you know businesses don't just you know happen like you you were born and then you just grow everybody grows you know presumably if you're living Um, but a business can just like be and not be you need to actively pursue building it And the one thing I did learn from reading a book from Starbucks um, CEO, who I think is one of the most and best business leaders in America, is that he didn't see himself in the coffee business. He saw himself in the people business. And Do you really believe he thought that or is that just nice talk to tell the media? I think it really is authentic from him. I think he really truly believes it and that's what partially makes Starbucks successful is that it is an authentic kind of from the top down company obviously everybody there is not and obviously they they do want to hit those numbers and they're not just like this great angel that you know just wants to do good in the world but there is that authenticity that I think is there and it's I know it is easy to be skeptical about that but that's what i think part of where it comes from is that he truly believed that and he implemented that by you know giving you know healthcare when to part time employees and really working on developing people and every time you walk into starbucks there's this human connection that people are craving and this this third place that he speaks about between you know home and work And that Starbucks is you kind of feel comfortable there. You feel that human connection. It's the sound of the coffee. It's all these things that build that advantage that many business leaders don't really think about because they are thinking about those numbers, but they don't know what business they're in. And so I, I want to move away a little bit of that of my analysis, mm, but I, yeah. I, I'm happy. Well, to hear I would just comment.
1: say, um, sometimes I, I wish you talked about me the way you talked about the CEO of Starbucks, but, <laughs> but that's that's not important. This isn't about my ego. Um, maybe we'll title this episode, Shua's Ode to Starbucks and its CEO.
0: Well, you know what? Everybody has this person that they look up to. And I think after reading his books and listening to a lot of lectures, they're is something that i really do appreciate and look up to and part of of why i studied business was due to picking up his book online because it was the only business book for two dollars so yeah i i wouldn't be you know everybody has people that they really you know respect and look up to and i'm not to say that i don't respect you kobe i really do It's okay it's no no (laughs) I, i i i I really do, but but this is definitely somebody that hasn't has had an impact in our life. I understand. My life. I I understand. Okay, so I, w- I want to move on to your your personal personal you know competitive whether it's a competitive advantage or your personal advantage and how you look at yourself and because you're somebody who does grow you know organically and you have these innate abilities that you have, but sometimes I feel like you do mask it or you try to, you know, build something based on, you know, a very technical skill. Not, not to say that technical skills are not important. Of course they are, but the people that I think are very successful and, you know, feel free to argue with me on that is, is the people who really look at themselves and say like, where does my real competitive advantage lie? And I'm not, it could be something very technical but a lot of times it may be a personality trait or just like you know dealing with people and knowing about tech or i don't know for everybody it's something different um but that's where the real success happens is when you're real with yourself and you really display that and showcase that because it comes off as real it comes off as authentic and it's what you do best because you honestly looked at yourself
1: yeah. Um, I've, I've never really looked at myself through the lens of competitive advantage. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, in my entire life, I, I haven't really viewed it as, as a kind of competition for success. I, my, yeah, my primary goals <laughs> up till now, <laughs> I know, I'm so, like my, my goals like in life and they're not even really goals. It's just sort of the way that I've kind of lived, um, is just to, try to pursue happiness and like have fun and you know get along with the people around me and have some good discussions along the way so i haven't really you know looked at myself through that lens obviously this you know search for internships and the professional world beyond college kind of forces that question down your throat in a very, you know, painful way. Um, but I'm pushing back because I don't know if it's the healthiest thing for me to look at myself um, and reduce my my personhood to, you know, what can I contribute to the world and how can I be helpful in a utilitarian kind of way.
0: Uh, I've... <laughs> this, is, this is... um. This is some some criticism that I hear sometimes about the business school is that there's very much this utilitarian kind of competitive advantage um, mindset. and, and I respect, I respect the fact that you you don't look at yourself and, and you really do are searching for you know just living a healthy life and having good conversations and enjoying the ride. And I think that's so important and we forget that all too often. Um, with regard to what I was saying, it, it was less about like, how do I compete and win, win, win? How do I trample people and beat other people at this game that we call uh corporate America, where if you're competitive and you win, you're successful. And if you get monetary reward, you're even more successful and then you can buy things. That's, that's less about, um, the point I was getting at, although I, that was the terminology used in my business classes, but I think <laughs> what I'm really getting at is looking at yourself, and and that's that's what I'm trying to emphasize here. And you know, I I, I don't think it's bad to be competitive. I don't think it's you know great to be hyper competitive because you know you want to live your life, you want to go through that ride. I also don't think success is like necessarily you know, bad, but it's also not something that I think I would, you know, strive for, you know, just like, I'm only successful if I win in corporate America, you know, like personal success with, you know, the status quo and where you are right now. And that's something I learned from you is so important. And I all too often forget it. But really looking at yourself and saying, you know, maybe the terminology, you know, (laughs) shouldn't be used as like business school, but saying what what am I good at and who am I and you know how do I interact how do I deal with the world and it could be with internships you know and staring at yourself in the face when when you're under pressure I find a lot of times is when I when I see really who I am because when I'm under pressure kind of the guards are down you can't really fake it to yourself Um, and you just kind of see how you behave. And, and sometimes I'll take like this out of body kind of like looking at myself and analyzing what I'm doing. And I think that's so important because it's easy to build this persona or, you know, build how you think you are and, you know, how you think you want to be or how you think you want to live. But it's it's a whole new level when you actually look at yourself. And, I, I, you know, I have such a hard time with this, too. It's not like, you know, I figured it out. But. It's just an exercise that has helped me when, you know, I I do wonder and when I am looking for internships and when I am asking those questions, like, you know, how do you feel when you you get like consistently rejected or when you don't when you fail that test or when you have like seven tests and you're like, you know, how, how am I behaving right now to everybody around me? How am I dealing with this pressure and what will I actually be good at doing? Because what do I enjoy doing, you know, and it's easy to say like, oh, I just enjoy playing video games and I enjoy conversation and I happen to have to work. But I think it's another level to look at yourself and say, you know, what am I actually good at? And that's just another step. You know, also it's looking at yourself and saying, what do I enjoy? What do I like doing? How I behave? But saying what you're good at is just real so it it doesn't even need to be competitively it could just be telling the employer what you're good at and how you can match it to whatever they need um but the exercise is really just looking at yourself
1: what was the question? no there there's no question oh, okay. I guess, I guess
0: that was just uh, my opinion there I, I wanted to hear your thoughts yep. because you, you, you do you do sometimes challenge challenge my my assumptions and, and my my logic and I, I, yeah. I like that and so yeah mm-hmm. I yeah I don't know I think um,
1: the the struggle of receiving rejections. And staying positive about your capabilities is is a real struggle, Um, and and I think it's it's important to have the sense of self worth that is driven not by external forces, right? I value myself not because I received a gold star from the teacher, (laughs) or I value myself not because like you know an internship accepted me for a role. It's I value myself because you know, this is who I'm trying to be and I'm doing my best to be that kind of person. And so no matter how many rejection letters you get, if your sense of self-worth is inward-driven, then then you're good to go, basically. That's and funny. that that, I think, is ultimately what drives persistence because all of us run into obstacles and have challenges. And the people who can persist and push through are the ones who don't look at those challenges, take those challenges as an assault on self-worth, but just an indication of more the world around you than about your capabilities um, and limitations as a person.
0: Yeah. Um, The innate kind of feeling of self-worth, self-worth, is is all too important, and it's easy to forget it. But I also think it's hard, and almost it's it's really unnatural to maintain it when you are constantly getting this external feedback um, that you know maybe goes against that, and that I guess can tie in a little bit to what we were talking about about the internet. But something I've been thinking about on that matter is how you identify yourself and how i look at other people and sometimes i find myself you know and where i grew up sometimes people you know will say this person his ex and he works here at this you know firm or he goes to school here or he's in the military here and i've been thinking about it and saying like what if we kind of define people by their characteristics? Um, and that's something I've been trying to do is not... When I introduce somebody, I say, like, this person is X, he's an incredibly nice person. He's very friendly. He's very, you know, kind. I've seen this happen with, you know, this experience. And I, I don't know if that's, like, necessarily... A right thing to do but it's a good way to be able to look at people's internal capabilities and their internal feeling of self-worth and their character rather than these external things because if somebody is constantly introducing me as you know Shua um, studies at Wash U suddenly I feel like I'm connected to Wash U or Shua who works at doesn't matter where you know suddenly that's how you find yourself introducing yourself um so that's just an interesting thought that i've had and thought experiment um do you do you think that's that's a good way of doing or is is there is there value i i just in the identity and introducing or maybe it's something you just don't notice? yeah
1: um, I don't know if this directly responds to to what you're talking about, but um, I think there is sometimes an interesting gap between the way we see ourselves and the way others see us. And yeah. you know when you introduce someone else, um, are you introducing them in the way that they see themselves? Um, and moreover, you know while it's all well and good to live your life as motivated by your inner sense of self-worth, is the true Shua the one who you know you see inside and who you hear their that voice, or is it kind of an average between the way you view yourself and the way the world views you?
0: Yeah, and that's why. Well, definitely, I think it is an at well, it's not an average. It's I think a weighted more, average. More, a weighted average. Yeah, probably weighted. Probably more weighted to how people see you. Um, oh, interesting. interesting. Because, and I think that's where you get the feedback. So if there is this culture of people introducing me as, you know, a certain characteristic, suddenly I know that's how I'm perceived in groups. And, you know, sometimes people will give you the wrong, you know, the wrong perception or they'll see you in a specific setting and they don't know you as well as you know, you know, they don't see you in every single situation. But I think like good friends that have seen you in multiple Know settings have seen you over periods of time, do know you a lot better than you know somebody who just met you and perceives you a certain way,
1: right? Have you ever had an experience where a friend has pointed out something about you that you've been like, Oh, yeah, like I never really like now that you say it, like I realize that that I do that?
0: Um, I, I think we we had a small experience where I thought. I'm a little louder in our apartment. I thought I'm a little bit more, you know, outgoing or no, not even outgoing, just like a lot louder and, you know, less like a little bit, you know, moving around a lot, like having a lot of things going on, just being a very like shaky presence, I guess. I don't don't know how to define it, but uh i think you told me like oh i I think you're actually like pretty quiet and not not quiet but you said you're a chill dude i'm I'm a chill dude dude, right (laughs) that's what you said and i i didn't i don't necessarily see myself as a chill dude so that was i guess uh what one point where I, i did get that feedback and i was like well you know what like that's that's fair like that that's something that I do need to internalize and incorporate. And, and I had this like maybe a little bit of a wrong perception. I, again, I didn't think I was like incredibly not chill. I just didn't see myself as necessarily chill. Um, so yeah, that that was an experience like that. Have you had any, that sort of thing happen to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely the people I'm around the most um, provide the most insight into how they view me, um, and stuff that maybe I take for granted because I'm with myself all the time. So it's easy to become desensitized to certain things. Um, and other people around me can kind of point those things out. Um, like my habit of throwing my, my jacket on the ground, uh, doesn't always jive with with my mom, (laughs) um, which is understandable. Um. But, yeah, I think the people you're, you're around the most and the people you're closest with um, can really provide some insight into your character that you, you've become desensitized to um, just because we spend our whole lives with ourselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's an exercise we did in public speaking where you had to, and we did this a bunch of times, where we had to um, really just point out 100% of our attention on the other person. I think that's a great place for us to stop. That was an interesting conversation. We spoke a lot about business and a little bit about identity, about definitions, um, and more. So thanks for sticking around, and we hope you listen in for our next episode of the Shua and Kobe podcast. Have a great day.